Welcome to the podcast, Eavesdropping on Arthurians, a podcast that records some of the world's top Arthurians chatting about Arthurian texts. Imagine you're at an Arthurian conference, and after a day of listening to papers on all things Arthurian, you've all gone to the pub. So, order a pint of ale, pull up a stool, and settle in to listen to two scholars talk about their favorite books. professor of English at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Before retiring, he won every single award for teaching that Baylor offered. He is also a prolific researcher, with several books and over 40 articles to his name, including several recent and forthcoming articles in Arthuriana. I met Dr. Hanks at the Mallory Conference in Wolfville last summer, and my conversations with him were actually one of the inspirations for this podcast. Not only did we have delightful conversations at that conference, we've been keeping them going via Skype ever since, and I've learned so much talking with him. Let's start by talking a bit about the Mort d'Arthur. Who was Thomas Mallory? What do we know about him? And so on. We don't actually know as much about Mallory as one might think. We know that he was born roughly 1415 in England, near or at Newbold Revel, R-E-V-E-L. We know that he participated in the French wars of the time. We know that he was on the opposite side to King Edward, who took uh, great offense at that. We know that Edward excluded him from two pardons, general pardons, that Edward passed after he reached the kingship. Uh, We know that Mallory was imprisoned in Newgate Jail, accused of various and sundry dreadful things, including, I should add, rape. Uh, Actually, he was accused of raping the same woman twice, a young woman named Joan Smith. None of those charges was ever proved. Indeed, the charges and Mallory were never brought to court. Huh. So it remains a blank space. Um, I suppose we'd have to say it looks a whole lot like slander, or we might say he managed to get out from under a lot of dreadful things, including, and we in Texas especially take this ill, rustling of cattle. Yes, so there was a lot of, um, I mean, this is during the Wars of the Roses, right? So there was a lot of, I think they called, I don't don't think they called it rustling back then. I think they called it pillaging, maybe, on both sides. They didn't call it rustling, actually, though we in Texas know that's exactly what it was. (laughs) Good. So the Mort d'Arthur opens with what I think today would be called a rape, right? Merlin disguises Uther and he sneaks in to sleep with Igraine and she sleeps with him thinking he's her husband. So could you talk a bit about this, I think what we would call rape and um, would they have thought that was rape back then? They would not have thought of it as rape, although you and I probably do. Here's what occurred. Uther, who is the king of all England at that time, according to the Mort d'Arthur, Uther calls to his court not only the Duke of Cornwall, but the Duke of Cornwall's wife, 
because everyone says that she is very comely. They add, oh, and she's also very wise, sort of as an afterthought. (laughs) Of course. Uther evidently is not interested in the second quality, but he's very interested in the first, and he makes advances. Um, She simply refuses him and goes straight to her husband and says, the king is after me. I suppose I was sent here so that I might be dishonored. Let's go home. And so they do go home, much to Uther's displeasure. Right, of course. And so Uther seems to think that he has a right not only to random women, but to actual married women of his high lords, I think. Exactly right. Not unlike Henry VIII. Uh, (laughs) Oh, right. He is so taken with this whole idea that he claims to languish because of his, and I quote, love, end quote, for a grain that he persuades Merlin to disguise him as the Duke of Cornwall. He promptly goes to Cornwall to the castle of the Duke and the Duchess, Igraine, uh, and he goes to her bed and basically says, um, get into bed. She does, as I ought to do, she later says. Uh, And there he has his way with her and then leaves. I might add that Arthur is engendered at this, King Mm -hmm. Arthur to be, but still in the state of California, that qualifies as rape. In fact, it was so adjudicated a few years ago. And probably in your mind and certainly in mind, it also counts as rape. And I might add that in a case I know of at Nellis Air Force Base, Nevada, it was also prosecuted as rape. And the person who had the male person who'd taken part in this was sent off to a military prison. Right. Yeah. So there's this disparity between what we think qualifies as rape and what Mallory's original audience would have thought. They didn't seem to think that the deception involved was a problem. How do we deal with that disparity between what we think and what they would have thought back then? I know that in teaching the Mort d'Arthur, my students have often seemed simply to blip right over a Grange rape and basically to have the feeling, oh, that must be the way they did it back then. But (laughs) no no one has ever gotten outraged. Um, I have. But they have not. Even the Hmm. women in the class seem to think, well, that was long ago and far away. It no longer counts for us. Right. And yet your experience at the Air Force Base shows that it really does count for us, that this still happens. It does. And I have to add that the lawyers involved who were prosecuting said among themselves that if the miscreant had debated because he fully deceived the woman involved, if he had simply debated and pled not guilty, he probably would have won. Wow. uh, He didn't, however. He was wholly contrite uh, and, as it were, welcomed his prison sentence. Right. Now, I don't think it was seen so clearly then. Right. In fact, I'm sure it wasn't. Just look yeah. at look at what Mallory has done. Um, 
operating within the confines of his time, he wrote in 1468, 1469, 1470, operating then, uh, he points out that as a result of this rape, Arthur was conceived, is born, and becomes the greatest king. Yeah. Uh, that certainly would seem to be a reward rather than punishment for Uther's transgression. Sure, absolutely. Throughout the Mort, sexual irregularity often, in fact, most often, leads to a bad outcome. Not always, huh. but most often. It certainly does with the conception of uh, Mordred as a result of Arthur's lying in total ignorance with his half-sister. Right. And you could actually say that's part of the problem of, like, that goes back to this deception by Uther because Arthur doesn't know it's his half-sister. That's a very good point. I had frankly not thought of that. Good point. Yeah. But well, neither had I until this moment. <laughs> <laughs> so getting back to this disparity between how we would read the rape, I, I think it's very clearly raped by our standards, of Egrain and how the text reads it. Um, can you talk about how you teach it? You said no student ever objects to it. And I think I've had a couple of students say, hey, this is this is this amounts to rape. But it's never a big deal. And and so how do you go about teaching this section with those the, the broad disparity between now and how they would have seen it back then? At first, I simply was equally blind. It's embarrassing, but it's true. This is back <laughs> back in 1987 to about 1990. And slowly I came to realize, you know, that just isn't right. No matter what time, no matter what text, it's just not right. Uh, and thought about it further. Now, when I teach it, I uh, tell the story of the personages at Nellis Air Force Base. Okay. And then I ask, what should be the attitude here of the people involved and of those around them. And that suddenly brings things home a bit and they begin to they begin to see, well actually they just flat out say, well he was wrong. He should right. not have done that. He's quite right about wanting to be in prison. He ought to be imprisoned for that. Which is also what happened in the California incident, which I also give them as part of the reading for the day. And can you tell me about that incident? A young man and a young woman are in bed in another room. A party is going on and they have simply retired indecorously. Uh, <laughs> the guy's best friend knows that they've gone uh, and what they're up to or what he thinks they're up to. The lady letter says indignantly, we didn't do that, but uh, they were in the same bed at any rate. Um, the lady goes to sleep. Both the lady and the gentleman have had more to drink than was perhaps good for them. Uh, the best friend, meanwhile, hovers about. Well, the guy wakes up and leaves, not wanting to wake the lady, whereupon the friend goes in and takes his place, and he makes love to the lady who thinks that it is he. Presumably the room is dark. Right. Uh, thinks, rather, that this is the boyfriend. When she discovers otherwise, she turns him in, uh, and he's sentenced to prison for two years. Wow. Um, he serves his two years. In the process, 
uh, he makes an appeal, brings an appeal through his lawyers, and he is let off, but he has already served his two years, so it's pointless. And right. it became California law that in such an incident, that was rape. Right. Good. Yeah, it kind of brings it home to what Egrain must have been feeling. Indeed. You talk about and you use in your article the term Bactinian dialogism, and that's the ability to read, if I understand it correctly, to read a passage or a text with kind of simultaneously with two contradictory, even competing opinions or interpretations without having one of them cross the other one out. So could you talk a little bit about how this would work? Well, I have to say, I first became aware of this from the faculty of the religion department on my campus. Okay. They, they teach their students to look at the texts in the Bible, both as people of the time saw them and as they have been interpreted down through the years. And then finally, how do we read them now? Interesting. Uh, and then I ran into Bakhtin and this idea that Bakhtin calls a dialogue between the time, the text and the time it was came about in, and yeah. the text and the time it's currently read in. For Mallory then, he has, his text carries on a dialogue with his audience of 1470 and thereabouts. Uh, and it also carries on a dialogue with the audience of 2020 or 2019 right. or whenever, as opposed to believing there is there is somehow an absolute about the text, the one only way to read it, and that everything else is an error. There's another incident in your article that you talk about even more than this um, rape of Egrain, the scene with Peleus and Etard. And so could you summarize the plot for us a little bit, and then maybe tell us about what the critical response to this has been. The episode comes from Mallory's French source, and in the French source, it ends up very happily. Um, Etard and Peleus, eventually through the machinations, first sinister and then friendly, machinations of Sir Gawain, come to wed after a lot of complication in the early story of Lancelot, the prose Lancelot. In the English text, Mallory changes several things. It ends quite ill for Etard. In the story, Peleus thinks he has won her love by doing the heroic thing. He has conquered all comers in a tournament. He has won the the prize of the tournament, which is a crown of beauty to be awarded to a lady. He gives it to Etard, and she says, go away. Right. I'm, I'm not going to be your lover. She, in essence, says, I'm not a trophy. And off right. she goes. She goes to her castle and says, do not come after me. But he does. Uh, and this is hallowed in the romance tradition of the time. The lover keeps being mistreated by the woman until eventually she takes pity on him. Uh, it is a commonplace. Mallory does not follow the commonplace path. Instead, the lady oh. continues to say, I want nothing to do with this man. He continues to follow her. At one point, 
assuring her, I know you will come to love me because you'll take pity on me. But she doesn't. Gawain comes along. Gawain takes pity himself on Peleus. And he says, tell you what, buddy, uh, let me take your armor. That will let me get close to this lady. And then I will tell her of your good qualities, speak in favor of you. And, you know, I am the king's nephew. So I really think she'll listen. Okay. Gawain swears by all that he holds holy that he will not betray Peleus, but that he will try to win the love of the disdainful Etard. Instead, the two of them has barely met Gawain and Etard. Before Gawain tricks Etard into bed, she seems nothing loath, and <laughs> they spend three nights, for Pete's sake, lovemaking. Right. After a couple of nights, Peleus begins to think, this is not going as I wish. <laughs> surprise, surprise. On the third night, he goes there and finds the two of them sleeping outside the gates in a fancy pavilion. There they are lying asleep, unclad. Peleus draws his sword, thinking to kill Gawain. Then he realizes, no, no, that would not be a knightly thing to do, to kill a man unarmored and sleeping. So he lays his sword in Mallory across their throats. They're evidently sleeping very deeply. Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't want to roll over. As you say. Uh, and he goes away. The, <laughs> the loving pair awaken, realize what has happened. Etard says, uh, you've lied to me because this is his sword. And Gawain says, oh, dear. Uh, so I have. And he is contrite. He doesn't go back to Peleus in oh, okay. this account. Instead, another party, a woman, enters. This is Nineveh, also known as the Lady of the Lake, the better-known giver of the sword to Arthur, one who shows up all throughout the Mort d'Arthur as the helpful lady, uh, the fairy lady of right. the Arthurian story. She's going to be helpful again. And what she does is help Peleus. She casts a spell. Peleus will no longer love Etard. In fact, he will now hate her as much as he ever loved her. And hmm. zap, he does. Presumably part of that same spell, she says it is, is that she infects Etard with love, major love, for Peleus, who no longer loves her. Wow. The story ends as you might think. Nineveh and Peleus wed, and Etard is misery for a very short time and then dies in misery, huh. thus, thus receiving what the what Nineveh obviously thinks are her just desserts. In fact, at one point she says, this is the righteous will of God. And that seems to be the judgment that is accepted in the text. Right. Uh, Everyone agrees that Etard should have given her love to Peleus and deserves what she got. They do indeed, everyone. Now, Gawain is a rotter here and a cad, but he <laughs> recognizes that Peleus is in the right and that Etard ought to be changed of mind because that's what the woman is supposed to do. Right, according to the courtly love standard of that if you fight well and you're of good blood, you should have pity on the man. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, 
It is a standard that is stated by Guinevere very early in the story. Uh, shortly after she marries Arthur, in fact, Sir Kay does something heroic. She talks about it and says, no woman should refuse her your love because you are a knight of such prowess. A woman must accept you, in other words. And oh. having established that standard, it pretty well continues throughout the Morked Arthur, except, as we know, for Etard. Right. That she doesn't accept martial prowess or, you know, blood or heritage or good looks or whatever as a de facto reason to love someone. She does not. To put it in modern terms, the guy's the captain of the football team. He's also the quarterback. He's had a remarkably successful season, but the chief cheerleader wants nothing to do with him. Right. Interesting. So what's been the critical reception of this story? It's surprising to me. In 1933, uh, Professor Whitehead said of it that Etard gets her just desserts. Whitehead was a student of Vanover, who was the most, re most well-regarded editor of Mallory for decades, up through right. 1990, in fact. Uh, and Vanover says those exact words, that Mallory wants to give Etard her just desserts for, he calls it, I quote, her infidelity, end quote. I By sleeping with Gawain? by not accepting Peleus. He makes that very clear. That is what is the crime here, not accepting Peleus. And Mallory wants to punish her as a result. And that's called infidelity. Yes, it is. Wow. You kind of give us the historical reading in your article. Indeed. And how it's been received by all critics. And you have a different reading. You know, I would characterize you as a Southern gentleman, and you seem to disagree with all of these women critics and presumed feminist critics. So why don't you, um, could you talk a little bit about everybody else's reading and then talk about your own reading of this story? One of the scholars, Elizabeth Sklar at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, Elizabeth has said of the account in just a couple of sentences, and that's all she says of it, that it is disgusting, nauseating, uh, sadistic. But having said all these things, she simply leaves it behind her without hmm. going into any detail. And without saying why she thinks it's disgusting and sadistic. Correct. She does not. And she doesn't, okay. she doesn't even recount the episode, so it's hard to know what she bases that upon. The tide of scholarship has simply followed Whitehead and especially Vinover, and has said that, yes, Etard should have loved him because the text says so. Ladies right. in the text say that she is a proud woman because she will not love this man who clearly deserves her love because he's the best knight. Um, everyone mirrors what those initial ladies say. Right, and you call this the Guinevere standard. That Indeed. The it, women should give their love to a man who proves himself. It continues up through 2017 with, gosh, I guess 15 or 20 separate scholarly articles. Wow. Uh, very little questioning of what has taken place. Uh, the closest question uh, has come from Siobhan Mary Wyatt. Siobhan Wyatt says of the incident that perhaps 
it could say something about the the improper thinking that leads to thinking the woman is in the wrong because she turns down a shooter. Hmm. But Wyatt barely hints at that. It's in her book, Women of Words, 2017. Uh, and at that point, she goes on to other other matters in her Women of Words. After all, Etard doesn't get many words. Basically, she gets to say no and then die. Right. Uh, aside from that, those two instances, no one has actually looked closely at this and asked, well, what is a proper scholarly response in 2020? Right. That's, and so everybody has agreed with the text that says, okay, she's basically got what she deserves and she's a proud woman. And yep, we agree with Nanye, or Nineveh and Guinevere. That's exactly what has happened uh, in terms of scholarly jargon. You might call this the new critical approach, the idea that there is indeed one meaning for the text. And if you read the text carefully, you can find that meaning. What What is your reading of this text that you haven't found any other scholars so far doing it? And, and I have to confess that you made me feel ashamed that I did not read it this way and that I'd skimmed over this incident and accepted it like every other scholars uh, has done. And I think of myself as a feminist or, you know, whatever. And I'm, I'm quite ashamed to be shown up by a Southern Texan gentleman. <laughs> I was at Nellis Air Force Base when this event I mentioned earlier occurred with the woman who was essentially raped, although she did not know it at the time. Uh, she didn't know it until morning came. Right. And her drunken colleague in bed turned out to be someone other than her husband. Huh. The story went about the base, and I deliberated on it a great deal. And by that time, I was very luckily married. And I thought that if someone had done that to the two of us, I would be probably homicidally incensed. I'd certainly want to be. Yeah. Uh, given that thought and given the kind of well, I have to say snickering responses I heard from a couple of people. Hmm. I was awakened to this double way of looking at things. Um, and then I've been reading haltingly modern scholarly criticism of how one might approach a text. And then all these things sort of came to a head when I began reading a bit about stalking. I have had, I had a student who was stalking a young woman and wow. I urged him to stop that and held up the specter of the police. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that stopped him. He left my class. I had no way of checking up on him aside from writing him a note later on, which I did to ask him uh, basically, well, how are things hoping that he would be open? And he never answered. So hmm. I just don't know what occurred there. I do know that stalking has not turned out well for a lot of women. Uh, you, will, you will recall that I mentioned, in fact, a Colorado instance where, which turned into law. The law is called Vani's Law. It took place in the early 2000s. Uh, a man began to stalk a teaching assistant named Vani. Um, she got an injunction. He received the injunction, but no further 
no further halt. It was said, you have to keep your distance. Um, after a certain amount of time of keeping his distance, he shot Vani and then shot himself. Wow. Vani's law then went into effect in Colorado. I think it was in 2002. And it has been in effect since. Uh, anyone credibly accused of stalking is likely to go to jail. Uh, in fact, he does. It's a felony, a class two felony. And mm -hmm. he has to make bail before he can get out. And in order to do that, he basically receives the uh, injunction to stay away from the woman, a stern caution from the judge, uh, and the word that if he jumps bail, as it were, he will be in in prison for felony. Okay. And so you would apply that law and your experience to this story that one, you know, if we don't read it the way the text wants us to read it, if we read it through the lens of, you know, 21st century feminism, this is a story of stalking. It's a woman who has refused a man. He feels that he has the right to her. He, she runs away. She locks herself in the castle. She says, stay away. She gets a court injunction for him to stay away. And he keeps after her to the point where, I mean, I think this could easily have turned into one of those incidents of rage that he, he could have, he, he was brought to the point of almost killing her and going. Surely you're right. I mean, we do see that. He almost kills at least Gawain. It's not clear that he intends to kill Etard, but right. murderous and laying the sword across both of their throats certainly at least symbolically enacts a double murder. Right. Uh, no, I think you're quite right. He never actually directs rage against them, except for a moment uh, explicitly against Gawain. He self-directs his rage. He decides to go lie down and die uh, of love. And he goes off and sets to doing that. It's Nanive, the woman, the wizardess, who steps in and saves his life. He, right. he is um, ready to die. Wow. And you would think that feminists would think that Etard had a perfect right to refuse her body to anyone, no matter I what he's done. Actually, I think you would think that any decent person, whether feminist <laughs> so. or not would think that. Yeah. Wow. And so, I mean, I think we've been hearing a lot about incel culture and the idea that men do, or mostly men, I think, and incel stands for involuntary celibate, that they feel they deserve sex, that they deserve love and sex and so on. And they often feel that they deserve the, the, the body or the sex of a particular woman. And I can kind of see the roots of it here. Well, I have to agree. Um, and it's not, not an attitude solely appearing in the late Middle Ages and then reappearing in modern times. I think that is an established view on the part of what I might call, loosely speaking, the macho tradition in which the male heroic figure deserves. Uh, and most heroic figures probably feel, well, most men probably think of themselves as heroic in one way or another. We had an incident here in town in a local bar and dance hall where two men began an altercation over a young woman. They stepped outside, duked it out, uh, whereupon 
the guy who won and left the other one bleeding in the dirt outside in the parking lot uh, took the young woman by the arm and said, okay, baby, let's go. To which she responded, shaking off his hand, what do you mean? I ain't no damn trophy. I came here to dance. And she goes back inside. Wow. But it's clear that he felt he had won her favors and was intending to enjoy them. She just wasn't having anything to do with it. Right. And he snuck off because here he'd been rather publicly humiliated. But that need not necessarily have been his reaction. Others have responded less well. Yeah. And shot, you know, her or, or, you know, the other man. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that Mallory and, and Ninyev, um turn that he, he will hate her as much as he previously loved her, that that's actually quite psychologically plausible, that this extreme emotion of desire and wanting to possess the other person and extreme like obsession with the other person that some people feel turns very quickly into hatred and violence and wanting to then murder and death. I had not thought of that. You make an excellent point there. And as you say, psychologically, it seems exactly right. The man who shot Vani did not do it because he still loved her. No, yeah. you are quite right. How very interesting and sad. So can we apply, like, so how do we make sense of this episode? Can we um, apply both ways of reading, both interpretations, hold it at once as a reading as a stalking thing while acknowledging that the text is asking us to read it as like through the lens of the Guinevere standard or courtly love? I think when we first get there, we read that story, especially if we are young, impressionable juniors and seniors. We read that story as through the lens of the Guinevere standard. He right. loves her. He's a great knight. He deserves her. If she doesn't agree to love him back, that's a flaw. And we right. see that throughout the Mort d'Arthur because Guinevere, who is married to Arthur, is faced with the love of Arthur's greatest knight, Lancelot, and she comes to love Lancelot. It's, as it were, an enactment. Yeah. As he deserves, I guess. As he deserves. Only at the end do we find, you know, Arthur is dead, Mordred is dead, uh, the place is littered with bodies. Lancelot finds Guinevere in her convent where she has retired uh, to do better, to do penance. And he goes there knowing that Arthur is dead and thinking, now at last she can become my wife and my love. Uh, and he tells her that that's what he had intended, but she has already told him at that point, no, I am here to get my soul's heal. I wish to look upon the face of God. We can no more even think about this matter. Hmm. I don't like to think of Lancelot as a stalker, and in fact, I don't, because she says, now go away, and he does. Yeah, he accepts her decision. He does. He does exactly that and doesn't see her again until she's dead. He's the one. He has become a priest by this point, which means automatically celibate, at least for the readers of that time. Yeah. And he uh, reads her dirige, her 
dirge ceremony and buries her next to Arthur. Yeah. So that's how Peleus should have acted. Exactly. At least by modern standards. That's not how he should have acted by Guinevere's earlier standards. Interesting. I wonder if Guinevere has changed her mind by the end of the story. Because you also point out that the Nynaeve or Nynaeve, um, she has a double standard. She doesn't apply the same standard to herself as she does to Etard. You're exactly right. Merlin, the great magician. Well, no, I'm stealing from you. Ah, well... (laughs) You're reading aright what I've written okay. down. Uh, Merlin, the great magician, has hung about Neneva, wanting, as the story puts it, to take her maidenhead. Um, she gets tired of that. She yeah. learns his magical arts from him, while at the same time exercising her feminine wiles, and having wiled away her time productively, she takes him into a cave, covers him up with a stone, and he can't get out. Uh, He's presumably still there, probably somewhat withered and mummified, but (laughs) who knows with wizards? Yeah, and so she has a stalker, and yet she treats him totally different than she expects Etard to... Now, maybe Merlin isn't a great fighter, and and that's what she thinks should be rewarded, but... um, she, I don't think so. That doesn't come through in the text. He is certainly a great magician. And as you say, there is nothing there about her refusing him because he's not desirable. She says, he's always about me and I don't like it. So, right. so she encaves him. Right. As, as he, I think, deserves, but maybe Peleus deserves that too. <laughs> well, um, By our standards, he does. By the standards of the other ladies at the tournament, no. They admit he should, well, they say, he should have realized there were others there prettier than she was. This is the lady speaking. uh, And who would have been glad to have him? Still the lady speaking. So presumably they have also adopted the Guinevere standard. Interesting. So... Can, my final question would be, can we expand this dialogism, this ability to hold two conflicting interpretations at once to the whole of Mallory or the whole of medieval literature? Because often students seem to think that these texts endorse rape, they endorse stalking, they, and so we, we should just get rid of them all together, that we, we should condemn them all together. And you know, so does this enable us to enjoy these great books while still condemning misogyny or racism or sexism or whatever? Or am I just taking the easy way out? And is that a cop out? If we were to wipe out of literary existence all books which offered as admirable or at least acceptable those things that we don't want to have anything to do with, Uh, I am not sure how much would survive. Uh, There are are many such texts in the Middle Ages. There are many such texts in the 20th century. There are many such texts so far in the 21st century. Um, It just doesn't work. You're eventually left with almost nothing because each, what, each age becomes a judge of the other ages and they all say uh, they were earlier than we were, so they were wrong and wipe it out. Things just don't exist that way. No. And 
I also think that we can maybe learn something from these texts that maybe this provides some insight into why other women support the football player who raped someone rather than the person who was raped. I like that. I think you're right. Uh, one would hope that is the case. Why, All right. Wyatt goes so far as to suggest that in her 2017 book. Uh, and another author whose name escapes me, another scholar, has suggested that if we read the Peleus Natard episode with an eye to our time, we can perhaps read it differently than the people of the time would read it. Unfortunately, she doesn't develop that further. Hmm. Interesting. Well, this has been a real pleasure, as always. Thank you for chatting with me and thank you for opening my eyes really, truly to an incident that I had previously just accepted and not thought much about. Well, I'm delighted to have spoken with you and I'm so happy that reading one of my essays has actually made a difference to a living human being. <laughs> All right. You've been listening to Eavesdropping on Arthurians with Kathy Causey. Join me next time to eavesdrop on another chat about a different but equally fascinating story about Arthur. Our music is Mordred's Lullaby by Heather Dale. You can download it for free from Heather